Chapter Five of The Last Plainsman by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Grey. Chapter Five. Oak Spring. Mose and Don and Sounder straggled into camp next morning, hungry, footsore, and scared. And as they limped in, Jones met them with characteristic speech. Well, you decided to come in when you got hungry and tired. Never thought of how you fooled me, did you? Now the first thing you get is a good licking. He tied them in a little log pen near the cabin and whipped them soundly. And the next few days, while Wallace and I rested, he took them out separately and deliberately ran them over coyote and deer trails. Sometimes we heard his stentorian yell as a forerunner to the blast from his old shotgun. Then again we heard the shots unheralded by the yell. Wallace and I waxed warm under the collar over this peculiar method of training dogs, and each of us made dire threats. But in justice to their implacable trainer, the dogs never appeared to be hurt, never a splot of blood fleckered on their glossy coats, nor did they ever come home limping. Sounder grew wise, and Don gave up, but Mose appeared not to change. "'All hands ready to rustle?' sang out Frank one morning. "'Old Baldy's got to be shod.' This brought us all except Jones out of the cabin, to see the object of Frank's anxiety tied to a nearby oak. At first I failed to recognize old Baldy. Vanished was his slow, sleepy, apathetic manner that had characterized him. His ears lay back on his head, fire flashed from his eyes. When Frank threw down the kit-bag which emitted a metallic clanking, old Baldy sat back on his haunches, planted his four feet deep in the ground, and plainly as a horse could speak said, no sometimes he's bad and sometimes he's worse growled frank sure he'd plumb bad this morning replied jim frank got the three of us to hold baldy's head and pull him up then he ventured to lift a hind foot over his knee old baldy straightened out his leg and sent frank sprawling into the dirt twice again frank patiently tried to hold a hind leg with the same result and then he lifted a forefoot baldy uttered a very intelligible snort bit through Wallace's glove, yanked Jim off his feet, and scared me so that I let go of his forelock. Then he broke the rope which held him to the tree. There was a plunge, a scattering of men, though Jim still valiantly held on to Baldy's head, and a thrashing of scrub pinion, where Baldy reached out vigorously with his hind feet. But for Jim, he would have escaped. "'What's well, all the row?' called Jones from the cabin. Then from the door, taking in the situation, he yelled, "'Hold on, Jim!' Pull down on the ornery gold cayuse. He leaped into action with a lasso in each hand, one whirling around his head. The slender rope straightened with a whiz and whipped around Baldy's legs as he kicked viciously. Jones pulled it tight, then fastened it with nibble fingers to the tree. Let go, let go, Jim, he yelled, whirling the other lasso. The rope flashed and fell over Baldy's head and tightened around his neck. Jones threw all the weight of his burly form on the lariat, and Baldy crashed to the ground, rolled, tussled, screamed, and then lay on his back, kicking the air with three free legs. "'Hold this!' ordered Jones, giving the tight rope to Frank, whereupon he grabbed my lasso from the saddle, roped Baldy's two forefeet, and pulled him down on his side. This lasso he fastened to a scrub cedar. "'He's joking,' said Frank. "'Likely he is,' replied Jones shortly. "'It'll do him good.' but with his big hands he drew the coil loose and slipped it down over Baldy's nose, where he tightened it again. "'Now go ahead,' 
he said, taking the rope from Frank. It had all been done in a twinkling. Baldy lay there, groaning and helpless, and when Frank once again took hold of the wicked leg, he was almost passive. When the shoeing operation had been neatly and quickly attended to, and Baldy released from his uncomfortable position, he struggled to his feet with heavy breaths, shook himself, and looked at his master. "'How'd you like being hogtied?' queried his conqueror, rubbing Baldy's nose. "'Now, after this, you'll have some manners.' Old Baldy seemed to understand, for he looked sheepish, and lapsed once more into his listless, lazy unconcern. "'Where's Jim's old cayuse, the pack-horse?' asked our leader. "'Lost. Couldn't find him this morning, and had a deuce of a time finding the rest of the bunch. Old Baldy was cute. He hid in a bunch of pinions and stood quiet so his bell wouldn't ring. I'd trail him. "'Do the horses stay far away when they are hobbled?' inquired Wallace. "'If they keep jumping all night, they can cover some territory. We're now on the edge of the wild horse country, and our nags know this as well as we. They smell the mustangs and would break their necks to get away.' Satan and the sorrel were ten miles from camp when I found him this morning. Jim's cayuse went farther, and we never will get him. He'll wear his hobbles out, then away with the wild horses. Once with them, he'll never be caught again. On the sixth day of our stay at Oak, we had visitors whom Frank introduced as the Stewart brothers and Lawson, wild horse wranglers. They were still dark men, whose facial expressions seldom varied, tall and lithe and wiry as the mustangs they rode. The Stewarts were on their way back to Kanab, Utah, to arrange for the sale of a drove of horses they had captured and corralled in a narrow canyon back in the Siwash. Lawson said he was at our service and was promptly hired to look after our horses. "'Any cougar signs back in the bricks?' asked Jones. "'Well, there's a cougar on every deer trail,' replied the elder Stewart, "'and two for every pinto in the bricks. Old Tom himself downed fifteen colts for us this spring.' Fifteen colts?' That's wholesale murder. Why don't you kill the butcherer? We've tried more'n once. It's a terrible busted-up country, them breaks. No man knows it, and the cougars do. Old Tom ranges all the ridges and breaks, even up on the slopes of buckskin. But he lives down there in them holes, and Lord knows no dog I ever seen could follow him. We tracked him in the snow and had dogs after him, but none could stay with him, except two has never come back. But we've nothing again, old Tom, like Jeff Clark, a hoss-rustler, who has a string of pintos corralled north of us. Clark swears he ain't raised a colt in two years. We'll put that old cougar up a tree, exclaimed Jones. If you kill him, we'll make you all a present of a mustang, and Clark, he'll give you two each, replied Stuart. We'd be getting rid of him cheap. How many wild horses are on the mountain now? Hard to tell. Two or three thousand, maybe. There's almost no catching them, and uh, they're growing all the time. We ain't had no luck this spring. Bunch of corral we got last year. See anything of the white mustang? inquired Frank. Ever get a rope near him? Nah, near we have for six years back. He can't be catched. We seen him and his band of blacks a few days ago. Heading for a water hole down where Nail Canyon runs into Kanab Canyon. He's so cunning, he'll never water at any of our trap corrals. And we believe he can go without water for two weeks unless maybe he's at a secret hole we never trailed him to. Would we have any chance to see this white mustang and his band? questioned Jones. Same? Why, that'd be easy. Go down to Snake Gulch camp at Singing Cliffs. 
go over to Nail Canyon and wait. Then send someone slipping down to the water hole at Kanab Canyon, and when the band comes to drink, which I reckon will be in a few days now, have them drive the Mustangs up. Only be sure to have them get ahead of the white Mustang, so he'll have only one way to come. For he sure is knowing. He never makes a mistake. Maybe you'll get to see him come by like a white streak. Why, well, I've heard that Mustang's hoofs ring like bells on the rocks a mile away. His hoofs are harder than any iron shoe is ever made. But even if you don't get to see him, Snake Gulster's worth seeing. I learned later from Stuart that the white Mustang was a beautiful stallion of the wildest strain of Mustang blue blood. He had roamed the long reaches between the Grand Canyon and Buckskin toward its southern slope for years. He had been the most sought-for horse by all the wranglers, and had become so shy and experienced that nothing but a glimpse was ever obtained of him. A singular fact was he never attached any of his own species to his band, unless they were coal-black. He had been known to fight and kill other stallions, but he kept out of the well-wooded and watered country frequented by other bands, and ranged the brakes of the Siwash as far as he could range. The usual method, indeed, the only successful way to capture wild horses, was to build corrals around the water-holes. The wranglers lay out night after night watching. When the mustangs came to drink, which was always after dark, the gates would be closed on them. But the trick had never been tried on the white mustang, for the simple reason that he never approached one of the traps. Boys, said Jones, saying we need breaking in, we'll give the white mustang a little run. This was most pleasurable news, for the wild horses fascinated me. Besides, I saw from the expression on our leader's face that an uncapturable mustang was an object of interest to him. Wallace and I had employed the last few warm sunny afternoons in riding up and down the valley below Oak where there was a fine level stretch. Here I wore out my soreness of muscle, and gradually overcame my awkwardness in the saddle. Frank's remedy of maple sugar and red pepper had rid me of my cold, and with the return of strength and the coming of confidence, full joyous appreciation of wild environment and life made me unspeakably happy, and I noticed that my companions were in like condition of mind, though self-contained where I was exuberant. Wallace galloped to Sorrel and watched the crags. Jones talked more kindly to the dogs. Jim baked biscuits indefatigably and smoked in contented silence. Frank said always, We lose along easy-like, for we've all the time there is. Which sentiment, whether from reiterated suggestion or increasing confidence in the practical cowboy, or charm of its free import, gradually won us all. Boys, said Jones as we sat around the campfire, I see you're getting in shape. Well, I've worn off the wire edge myself, and I have the hounds coming fine. They mind me now, but they're mystified. For the life of them, they can't understand what I mean. I don't blame them. Wait till by good luck we get a cougar in a tree. When Sounder and Don see that, we've lion dogs, boys. We've lion dogs. But Mose is a stubborn brute. In all my years of animal experience, I've never discovered any other way to make animals obey than by instilling fear and respect into their hearts. I've been fond of buffalo, horses, and dogs, but sentiment never ruled me. When animals must obey, they must, that's all, and no mawkishness. But I never trusted a buffalo in my life. 
If I had, I wouldn't be here tonight. You all know how many keepers of tame wild animals get killed. I could tell you dozens of tragedies. And I've often thought, since I got back from New York, of that woman I saw with her troop of African lions. I'd dream about those lions and see them leaping over her head. What a grand sight that was. But the public is fooled. I read somewhere that she trained those lions by love. I don't believe it. I saw her use a whip and steel spear. Moreover, I saw many things that escaped most observers. How she entered the cage, how she maneuvered among them, how she kept a compelling gaze on them. It was an admirable, a great piece of work. Maybe she loves those huge yellow brutes, but her life was in danger every moment while she was in that cage, and she knew it. Some day one of her pets, likely the king of beasts she pets the most, will rise up and kill her. That is as certain as death. End of chapter 5